This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Two years ago, Christian Smalls began organizing for a union at the Amazon Staten Island Warehouse in New York. Smalls just celebrated a hard-won victory as workers at the state's largest Amazon warehouse voted to join the newly formed Amazon Labor Union. The Staten Island warehouse becomes the first ever Amazon location to successfully unionize, and it's notable that it did so via a brand new union. Last year, workers at Amazon's warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, voted against joining the retail, wholesale, and department store union. Smalls, explaining the Staten Island victory to The Guardian, said, quote, Established unions had 28 years to unionize at Amazon, and obviously that didn't work. The Amazon labor victory comes at the same time that 17 Starbucks locations around the country have won union representation since late last year. Joining me to discuss all this is Erica Smiley, longtime labor organizer and executive director of Jobs with Justice and co-author with Sarita Gupta of the new book, The Future We Need, Organizing for Better Democracy in the 21st Century. Welcome to the program, Erica. Hey, glad to be here, Sonali. So first, how significant is this victory in Staten Island? And what do you think was it that the Amazon labor union did differently from established unions, from the retail workers union or other unions that have tried and failed to organize at Amazon? Well, it is definitely a significant victory. And I think we're still feeling the uh, shockwaves in a really positive way throughout the country and throughout Amazon's uh, infrastructure. Um, I think that there are, are lots of potential reasons for why the Staten Island group was successful. I mean, I want to make sure that we give credit where credit is due and that they have a really powerful committee inside that did just boots on the ground organizing, just talking to fellow workers about uh, the problems, trying to identify real issues and, and galvanizing them around this election vote. So it's a, that's just that's just one really important thing that any union campaign really requires. But I, I don't think it's quite fair to compare uh, the the case within Staten Island and Alabama and other places, because I think, you know, one, we haven't seen that many NLRB elections at Amazon. And the one that we have seen, and you mentioned the Bessemer, Alabama uh, plant, um, is in a place that's just politically different, where it's extremely difficult for workers to form and join unions because of the political climate. And I think some of the issues that they faced were uh, very different in terms of, of um, having an active opposition, both within their political um, uh, leaders, as well as within the plant itself, an active group of white nationalists, which is very, very different. But at the same time, I think the thing that's really important for, for labor leaders and everyone to kind of like get behind in this particular moment is that both the ALU and the Bamazon Committee in Alabama see themselves as sister units, and that this is a fight both where both of the leaders uh, that, that started the organizing drives were motivated by the movement for Black Lives. This is something where this is a, a movement that's happening across the, the country that goes far beyond any one single site that's fighting for unionization, but is really about uh, a fight for democracy, a fight about dignity, and a fight about respect. 
So why is there that connection? Um, the the movement that has been sort of loosely dubbed Black Lives Matter, you cited the movement for Black Lives, um, has is most associated with police brutality and 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 criminal justice, um, you know, overhauling. This is an issue of economic justice. That's right. I mean, I think there's been a, a false separation between uh, the civil rights movement and social justice movements and, and workers and economic rights and economic justice movements. I mean, even in the 60s, I mean, we look at the March on Washington, it's the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. These are the same fight. And oftentimes, I think uh, it was Big Mike, who was one of the leaders in Bessemer, who said, you know, after watching the murder of George Floyd, they realized that they were facing some of the same uh, levels of discrimination and mistreatment, particularly during a global pandemic on the shop floor. And they said, you know, this this is our Black Lives Movement right here. You know, it was very similar to one of the workers that Sarita and I interviewed in our book, uh, Santioni Butler, who was talking about in the 70s, uh, their fight to win just a women's bathroom on the plant floor in the Ford uh, manufacturing plant that she worked at, that she and some of the other women workers had to fight to win that bathroom. And, and at the end, she said kind of nonchalantly, you know, that was our women's liberation movement right there. And this idea that there's a distinction between the two, between gender justice, between fighting white supremacy and fighting for workers' rights is actually a myth. And in fact, these are these are all wrapped up in the same fight for many of these workers. And just to go back to your earlier question, Sonali, like when you think about the workers in, in Alabama, right, this is a place where it's, it's, I think 85% of the workforce or more are black workers. And it's also one of the places where Amazon spends the most on off duty police to secure and surveil their facility. And so I can totally see why the workers in the Amazon committee would equate their workplace fight as uh, their role in the, in the movement for black lives. Let's talk about what it's uh, what this moment represents. You have these iconic brands like Amazon and Starbucks that are organizing victoriously at a moment when there's also a perhaps you know resurgence, strong resurgence in support among the public for labor organizing. Unions are today more popular than ever. The idea of unionizing Americans see the inequality in our economy and uh, support by and large the right of workers to organize. Does this seem to you to be an issue that that a little bit at least transcends partisan differences and and can be a a very significant um, way for, for Americans to unite? Oh, I think it's absolutely possible, Sonali, and I I really appreciate you bringing up the point, because in some ways, uh, unions have historically played this role. I mean, there's a reason why they've been called schools of democracy. They've been places where uh, everyday people can practice democracy, can be a part of of debates and and conferring and dialogues of, of different and opposing views sometimes, and see that, you know, for, for what it's worth and that it's, you know, it's sometimes messy, but that at the end of the day, like we make decisions and we act on those in ways that are really valuable. Unions are some of the most, you know, some of the, the last vestige of democratic institutions we have. You know, they elect their leaders, they pay dues, they make decisions based on ideally the voice of the members within them, whether they're independent like ALU or traditional like the uh, RWDSU. I think this is this is a key function of unions in our society. And so, you know, I think when we see uh, the steady decreasing of people in unions, we also, it shouldn't be surprising that we see a similar erosion of, of democracy in general, that this idea of, 
of political and economic democracy are, are very much two sides of the same coin. And so, yes, absolutely. I think that this could be a unifying moment and that unions could be playing that role in, in bringing people together from lots of different uh, uh, political persuasions. But I think the it's not guaranteed. And in some ways, like it's, it's more useful, the one unifying factor that I think we have to hold strong on and not compromise is that of democracy. And that I think there are some uh, on the right uh, who, who would like to see a very particular type of union, a very narrow, masculine, white kind of union be the, the key thing. And that they, you know, that I think Marco Rubio was the one who said they want to make the, the Republican Party the party of the, of the uh, working class. And I think, you know, there's some danger in that because, you know, even when we look at uh, some of the anti-democracy movements of the past, or even like the Nazi movement in, in Germany, the Nazi party was originally called the German Workers' Party, but it was, very, it was a very narrow nationalist focused of what the role of workers were, and also a very masculine and purist kind of a racially pure uh, articulation of what it is. And so it really matters that the workers who are leading this current moment are workers who are in traditionally low-wage sectors, are workers who are mostly women, are people of color, particularly black people and migrant workers. Like that, that matters when we think about who the face of the American worker is in this moment and what the, the ultimate goals that can't be uncompromised must be. And in your book, you profile a lot of women organizers. Well, let's let's uh, transition to your book. The big uh, challenge now for the Amazon labor union and for these Starbucks unionizing efforts is once you vote for union, then you start the process of adopting a contract, agreeing on a contract, negotiating with your employer on a contract for the workers. And your book um, starts out with a chapter about collective bargaining, a powerful yeah. but neglected tool. This is the sort of less sexy ver you know, aspect of labor organizing, right? That's but why, right. Is it <laughs> why is it important? <laughs> and, and people who haven't been in unions themselves may really not know much about this term other than having seen it bandied about. That's right. That's right. You know, most people, you, you talk to them about collective bargaining and they think you're talking about like a sale at the Dollar Tree or something, you know? <laughs> And, and yeah, we're talking about this very seemingly unsexy process that happens with, between two entities that are negotiating a set of terms and agreement. And, and that is what it is. Um, but uh, I think that at the end of the day, people do have some experience of this and want it, particularly when you look at just the small scale institutions that people are a part of in their daily lives. Like I'm originally from North Carolina. This, the Southern region is still very much the Bible Belt in this country and uh, most institutions of faith uh, have some democracy or, or some some um, governing platforms right they have some kind of leadership body they have committees where people get to consult and confer and make decisions about what the the church or, or the synagogue or, or whatever does right and that is basically the same thing uh, collective bargaining agreement is simply a, a policy for a workplace it's like setting the rules setting the laws we talk a lot about um, companies breaking rules and, and like we actually need to, to set rules in many of these places. That's, that's what an agreement does. And it does it in a way that consults with all the stakeholders, including most importantly, the employees. And it does it in a way that the employees can ultimately enforce or even grieve when something has, has gone wrong, when, when a rule has been broken. So, you know, just from that baseline level, that's what collective bargaining is and what it should lead to. And what Sarita and I argue in the book is that it can't just be through this kind of narrow lens that we've, we've um, 
protected through existing labor law from the New Deal because, you know, I can't imagine that Robert Wagner, who wrote the act, you know, could imagine what work would look like today and how the employment relationship would change. I don't think Robert Wagner ever imagined an Amazon or an Uber in the same way uh, that we've experienced. And so uh, all we're suggesting is that the framework for how working people do that must actually match their conditions, whether that's uh, with an immediate employer, with an ultimate benefactor, like the, you know, negotiating directly with McDonald's as opposed to each franchisee, or um, uh, expanding what's negotiated over so that it's not just very narrow, like wages, health and safety, but actually taking into account the impact that company has on the community and even community-driven strategies where we apply this framework of decision-making to other economic relationships, whether it's a tenant and their large corporate landlord or uh, a medical debtor and a hospital, right? To come together with others with a similar relationship to negotiate and renegotiate standards around that that relationship. And that that's really all we're saying is that, look, you know, uh, the economy doesn't just happen to us. These are economic relationships and we can negotiate relationships and we should be able to have a framework that allows us to do that. And that is not just gonna happen if we change the law, but we have to actually practice it ourselves and then shape the law around what begins to, to work for many of us. So that's that's ultimately what we're trying to get at in the book. And, and one other thing, Sonali, because you mentioned like the next thing they have to do, these workers at Amazon and Starbucks is, is, um, is negotiate a contract. The next thing they have to do is get the company to the table. Like, and what's really terrible about our current legal framework is that it sometimes allows these companies to drag that process out for years, like waiting for workers to turn over. There are some places where it's taken over 10 years to get a contract, just to get to the table to negotiate. And that's not fair. And that's why we really want to lift up certain legislative changes that would make that part of the process easier so workers can get to the table and negotiate a fair agreement without having to go through, right. you know, 10-year turnover and spend all this legal money trying to just get to a conversation. If you read the the, the pro-capitalist press, if you read, you know, Forbes.com or Wall Street Journal, the impression you get is that um, the economy is works best for everybody when it's left alone, when, you know, the invisible hand right. of the market will, will naturally, and they use terms like that's the invisible hand, <laughs> right, will, 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 uh, will write all of the imbalances just if it's allowed to operate freely. But of course, what they fail to mention is that our economy is operating in the way it is because it is by design, by legislative right. design, written in favor of corporations, of bosses, of employers, and it can just as easily be written in favor of labor if there was that political will. So, so I really appreciate that so much of your book focuses on um, creating a, a, a climate within which organizing is made easier because right now it's our economy is designed against organizing, right? That's right. That's right. It's like the, the people, the proponents of that argument, you know, like us to believe that um, corporations themselves are, you know, people too, which I think was the famous quote from Mitt Romney, right? Or that, you know, they're legal entities that should have the same rights as humans. And, and we say, no, humans, humans are the ones who should be in, in charge. Humans are the ones that should be in control. And I think you know, nothing showed us that more than the global pandemic that we're currently in. And we were able to fit some of this in at the last uh, bit of the book. But, you know, a lot of this happened since since the book was uh, was completed. But, you know, we had the situation where the invisible hand of the market, which operates on its own set of rules, frankly, to really drive up 
uh, profits for the select few um, running rampant and completely, you know, overshadowing human needs. So like, yeah, I think there was a really exciting intervention that workers made at General Electric when they were like, we can't make any more jet plane engines. No one's flying. We need to make ventilators. Like we, at some point we need to turn off the invisible hand of the market and turn on the real life hands of everyday people who can make decisions for, uh, for themselves and, and to the betterment of society. And we saw this great research report coming out of George Washington University that um, you stated that that looked at, at assisted living facilities in the state of Connecticut, union versus non-union assisted living facilities, and where workers had some form of decision making through their union in Connecticut. And these are mostly women, mostly women of color and black women in particular, black and Latina women in Connecticut. Uh, in the union facilities, there were 30% less COVID deaths than at the non-union facilities. Wow. And so again, like this is what happens when you turn off the invisible hand of the market and turn on the real live hands of everyday people to make decisions about this work and really engage workers as stakeholders. We're, we're all better for it. It's not just a matter of better wages and conditions, but actually a matter of survival for many communities. So uh, finally, Erica, tell me about some of the women who you profile, you and Sarita profile in your book, The Future We Need. Uh, as you said, the traditional sort of stereotypical uh, union organizer is a working class white guy. And you, the demographics of the people that you portray and that you uh, promote in your book are, are quite the opposite. That's right. I mean, you know, it's not like we, we had one working class white guy, right, Jeff, and he was fantastic um, and laid out, um, you know, totally turned the myths and fears that many carry around automation on its head, because when workers are involved in those decisions, um, the, the outcomes tend to be better for, for all of us. Um, but yeah, it was mostly women and particularly women of color. And that's actually the face of the, the American workforce. And it's not just because like things have changed over the last century. I mean, there have been some changes, certainly more women entering the workforce in the 60s and 70s, but um, they've always been there, <laughs> particularly, particularly women of color in low wage sectors, like in domestic work and service work, right? And, um, and so part of the, the argument, in addition to showcasing many of these, these people who we've been in the fights with. They aren't just strangers. These are people who through our organizing and various um, campaign work that Sarita and I had come into contact with and grown um, relationships with over the course of, of these different efforts. Um, we wanted to show that, uh, one, that this was the labor movement. So, you know, any idea of the labor boss or like the big white guy with the hammer or whatever, that, that it's not that that's completely wrong, but it's only just a very small part of the picture, right? That we wanted to show who was actually behind the labor upsurge in this in this particular era. Uh, the second thing we wanted to show is that they weren't just workers telling their stories of woe, but were actually the strategists behind some of the best, most innovative approaches to organizing and collective bargaining of our of our time. You know, we look at Cynthia Murray from uh, Maryland, who had been on multiple iterations of a campaign to hold Walmart accountable, where she still works. And she, she was part of the reason why thinking like you can't just go store to store. We have to really look at what it, what it means to, to target the ultimate benefactors of this company. Look at the board, look at the Walton family. Or uh, Dolores, you know, who uh, was, was a tenant organizer in Crown Heights, who tells her story about how she, how she came into the work from her history growing up in Jamaica to then organizing the first domestic workers bill of rights as a nanny in the United States and then applying 
some of those same skills to organizing tenants within the Crown Heights Tenants Union. It's it's fantastic. So it's, you know, in some ways, as, as much as um, you know, certainly Sarita and my name are on the the front cover of the book. You know, this is as much their book as well. And that is probably the third intervention, which is that these are women and women of color uh, telling our vision of what is to be done and the future, the future of the, the labor movement and the future of our democracy. It's not just a memoir of our bad experiences and how it's been so hard and all of that. I mean, certainly we all have versions of that, but like we're tired of seeing the only people writing about what is to be done uh, for, our, for our movement and for our democracy be, you know, white men, whether they're movement leaders or academics or whatever. Like we actually have pretty strong opinions and we have uh, strategies that work and that win. And when you actually center uh, white supremacy, when you center uh, gender discrimination, when you center fights against those things, we actually see that we, we win more. It's not just a matter of doing what's right, but actually a matter of, of guarantee, uh, guaranteeing that we win. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck to you and Saritha with the book. Thanks so much, Sonali. So glad to be here. My guest has been Erica Smiley, longtime labor organizer, executive director of Jobs with Justice, and co-author with Sarita Gupta of the new book, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.